Church, let's pray together. Father, we pray that as we turn now to your word, that you would open our hearts to hear, to receive. Lord God, would your spirit that inspired these words we ask, open our eyes to see you as you have revealed yourself. Lord, might we not conceive of you as we would like you to be, but rather as you have revealed yourself to be in the pages of this book, the Bible. Lord, we ask that you would guide our time and that you would be glorified in it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles this morning, would you please open them with me to Peter's first letter, chapter 2 and verse 9. 1 Peter 2, 9. And last week, we began a brief four-week study that we're calling Marks of the Church. Marks of the Church, as the slide says behind me. And if you've been with us this year on Wednesday evenings, then this phrase will not be unfamiliar to you as we spent some 12 to 13 weeks in the spring examining Mark Dever's study, Marks of a Healthy Church, which was a follow-up to Basics, a six-week study that we completed in the winter in which we sought to understand the foundations of a healthy church. And so the phrase marks of a healthy church or marks of the church ought to be familiar for many. But if you're visiting with us today and for those who couldn't participate in these aforementioned studies and then for those of you who've simply forgotten and in this moment your eyes are trying to dodge those of your pastor out of shame that you've forgotten, our goal in this study is simply to identify and explain as we talked about with the children the essentials of church, what it takes to be the church. And as simple as it sounds, it is. I mean, this isn't a complex subject. It's not like your new iPhone or your iPad or your MacBook, which comes with like no instructions, right? No instructions whatsoever in the box. All you have is a series of lead questions, which if followed correctly, result in this fully operational device, handheld computer phone, camera, video, music system that's sleek, it's simple in a minimalist way that belies complexity, right? And friends, the church isn't like that. It's in a fact acknowledged from as early as the 4th century, 325 A.D., in Nicaea, following a gathering of the church's leaders, and that was like every leader that the church had at the time, these men composed a statement defining the church as one holy Catholic and apostolic. And last week, if you were with us, I pointed out how for 12 centuries, 12 centuries, these four descriptives sufficed to define Christ's body. Unfortunately, as you can only imagine, such broad definitions, unchecked over such a long period of time, led to widely divergent expressions of church, eventually necessitating a reconsideration or reformation, a reformation as we call it today. In the 16th century, men like Martin Luther, John Calvin, Huldrich Zwingli, if you can say that name, and others like that, reacted to the abuses, among other things, resulting from the patristic definition of church. And it wasn't so much that they were rejecting the Nicene categories, that of unity, holiness, universality, and adherence to the apostolic teachings, as much as they reoriented them around a common center, the scripture. For the reformers, the church could not be a church without the gospel. That was the message of God's word. And thus, the gospel is an essential mark 
of the church. And we're going to be examining it together next week. But last week, as you recall, we considered and we celebrated another mark, one of the church's two ordinances, baptism. It was a glorious picturing of the gospel performed, as we noted, in emulation of Christ, who was himself baptized in obedience to his command to go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and as a demonstration of the gospel. For just as Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised from the dead according to the scriptures, so is that one who's being baptized, displaying that glorious gospel spiritual reality only in a physical manner. And we discussed this. Last week, today, as I just mentioned, we're not going to consider the gospel or the second of the church's ordinances, the Lord's Supper, instead, and, and this is really just in keeping with my argument regarding the simplicity of what it takes to be the church. Today, we're going to look at the church's mark I'm calling holy people, holy people. And before we read our text, which hopefully every one of you has found, 1 Peter 2.9, before we read our text, let me just provide a brief explanation as to the order in which we're examining these marks. In other words, and for those of you who this morning might be wondering, why, why are we starting with baptism, moving to holy people, followed by the gospel, with this plan then to conclude with the supper? Why the order? Well, and the answer is, in a simple, single word, convenience. Seriously, convenience. We had people that desired to be baptized, and the 27th worked for everybody. We also had completed our study of Galatians on the 20th, and so we just jumped right in last week. We also have in our calendar planned on November 17th a scheduled Lord's Supper. So we put the Eucharist at the end, and because you can't have church without people, I decided to go with people today. So no implied priority of place, no hierarchy intended here by our marks order, just convenience. Convenience and a little symmetry, because we're starting with an ordinance and we're ending, ending with an ordinance. So... There's our explanation. But let's read our text now. 1 Peter 2, and we begin in verse 9, where the apostle writes, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And may God bless the public reading of his word. Church, in this, this is Peter's first letter, which we examined in depth some two years ago. In this letter, the apostle is addressing God's elect, strangers, as he writes in verse 1, in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And we call these men and women sojourners, sojourners, people caught in a land not their own, even though they may have been born in these places, for their citizenship is elsewhere, heaven. And Peter writes to these, urging them to be as the Lord of their new homeland is, holy. As he states there in chapter 1, verse 15. But just as he who called you is holy, 
So be holy in all you do, for it's written, be holy, for I am holy. And so Peter is calling his readers to holiness. Readers who, as he explains in chapter 2, in verse 4, readers who have come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. So this is Christ. He's writing about Christ. You have come to him, and you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. So he's talking about the church, right? He's talking about the church, who, as he continues, verse 5, are offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through who? Jesus Christ. So, so this is most definitely a description of church where an element essential to this body or spiritual house is obviously, and keeping here with Peter's metaphor, is obviously the stones which compose it, right? These living stones who are people. But not just any people, because these people are chosen, as we've seen. And we read this in verse 9. They're chosen and holy. And so for our first point this morning, we may say of the church, we are holy people. We are holy people. Now, I doubt anyone, or I hope anyone here is thinking, wow. Now, I would hope there's few who are going, man, pastor, that's profound. You know, the church is holy people. We know, right? We know the church is people, and it's not a building. I would imagine that most all of us have at some point seen or heard the little children's Sunday school nursery rhyme. Here's the church. Here's the steeple. Open the doors. <gasps> Where's the people, right? And then we do it this way. Here's the church. Here's the steeple. Open the door. There's the people. I, I know we've all seen this or heard it. If you haven't, now you have, right? And so there's no shocker. There's no shocker here. The people are the church. And yet, despite this point's simplicity, I believe it's incredible how we evidence our failure to comprehend it. And let me explain. In our postmodern, hyper-individualized society, we don't tend to view collective terms like people in a corporate sense, meaning we read the word people and we even identify with it. But what we don't appreciate is the shared nature of this identity. Being a, a people means holding a specific set of values, beliefs, and a purpose in common with others to whom you are responsible and who are themselves responsible to you. There's an accountability inerrant in being a people. And yet, this is something that our 21st century culture vehemently rejects. There's no one today who, who may hold you accountable to anything but you, right? For who, who, who gave you the authority to, to hold me, to put me in my place, to remind me of my responsibilities? Who? Who? I mean, we are a world aggressively opposed to accountability. And these sentiments, sadly, I believe, have assimilated into the church, and it's reflected in the nature of church membership. For many churches today, belonging means nothing more than attending, availing oneself of a church's programs and resources. Oh, and, and then also making sure that you contribute, put some money in the plate, right? Or you can be even more impersonal in some places where you can watch the whole thing from the comfort of your couch, and then you can contribute online because you need to do that in order to make yourself feel better as if you're helping to make the world a better place. We fail to grasp what it means to be a people and what it looks like. You know, for so many people, or if you wanted to use a more urban vernacular, peeps, my peeps, right, means my friends, those like me, 
who like me and who I like in return. And sadly, a quick scan of the many churches that dot our nation's landscape express this reality with the all white, all black, all contemporary, all goth, all country, all urban, all you name your slice of society pie church, right? We're choosing, the choosing that's going on certainly seems to have a selective focus that we don't see detailed in the scriptures. The apostle Paul told the Ephesians that at one time, the church in Ephesus had been called Gentiles by birth. They were, they were uncircumcised and called such by those who called themselves the circumcision. But at that time, he says, they were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship among God's holy people, so the church. But now, in Christ Jesus, they who were once far away had been brought near. How? Through the blood of Christ. And then later, writing to the Galatians, he says that you are all sons and daughters of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. So now there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all what? One in Jesus Christ. Now, many, I want you to just take a moment and look around you at the people who are sitting in this room. We are old and young, homegrown and imported, blue-collar, white-coat, government, church, careered men and women. We come from, by my count, nine different countries, speaking at least six different languages, and that doesn't, that doesn't include those of our linguists present on furlough. Six different languages, and there's only about 120, 120 of us. We are a diverse people, but we are that, a people. We are a people because God has made us one. And he has done so through Christ. As Peter writes, you come to him, the living stone, and like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be holy, a holy nation. And that's men and women who share a common identity that brings with it a common accountability and calls for a common intensity as we strive to glorify our maker. So do you belong to such a people? And a great way to answer that question this morning is to consider this, and this is Mark Dever's words, but if there is no way for you to be excluded from the local church that you are currently attending, perhaps that be, that's because you have not included yourself in it as the Bible intends. So we may say of the church, for a first point this morning, we are holy people. Holy people. We are also pitied people. We are pitied people. And right here, I'm using the term pitied to summarize what's conveyed there in our NIVs, verse 10, the second half of verse 10, by the phrases, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In the original language of the New Testament, this term mercy here is it's actually a verb. And so a literal rendering would be once you were not mercied, now you are mercy. And since we don't use mercy, the term mercy in this way, the closest English word that we have, I think, is pity. Because pity can be both a noun and a verb. And so what, Peter, what I believe Peter is saying here is, in the words of one pastor theologian, when God chose us, he then saw us in our sin and guilt and condemnation, and he pitied us. So we're not just chosen, Emmanuel. We are pitied. We're not just the objects of his choice but we are the objects of his mercy 
So we are chosen, friends. We are pitied. We could even maybe say even better. We are graced. We are loved. God, God has loved us. God's church isn't simply people he has identified and called out. It's people that he has brought near to himself. Better yet, it's people to whom he has come near. Because in Christ Jesus, God came and became flesh, got in the flesh, and he dwelt among us. So in the person of Christ, God came near his fallen creation so that we might look upon him. We might know him. And this is why one pastor can write, our identity is fundamentally this. So this is who we are. Our identity is fundamentally this. We have been shown mercy. We are a mercied people. We don't get our identity first from our actions, that which we do, our careers otherwise, but we have our identity in being acted upon with pity. We're a pitied people. Who we are is defined by what God has done for us. And friends, how contrary is this notion to what is so commonly displayed in our churches where for many, involvement or, or, or belonging is a benefit or a blessing that we bring to the collective, to the body. Our presence boosts the church, so to speak. And so we approach a gathering, keeping our cards close to our chest, almost baiting them to beg us for our involvement, right? Now, we're the ones that this church needs. So kind of like Antonio Brown, we just hold out, waiting on a better deal, right? We're the customer, sort of in a car sale here, where the church is the dealer, right? And they're desperate for our business. But Emmanuel, this isn't what we see. This isn't the picture that we're given in the scriptures, is it? As we just said, the church isn't a business. It's people, holy people, made so by God's grace through faith in Christ's life, death, and resurrection, who have been shown mercy, pitied. And so we don't sit outside the church waiting for them to recognize our worth before we bless them with our presence. We the individual desperately need the fellowship found in the church with fellow pitied people. For not a one of us deserves what we've been given, and we need one another to remind each other of this fact. This is one of the very reasons that we gather weekly, to remind each other of the gospel and how worthless and how hopeless we are without it. So what's the church? Holy people, pitied people, and possessed people we are possessed people where peter captures this truth i believe twice in verses that we read first verse nine but you are a people belonging to god so possessed in the sense that we belong to god and then again in the first half of verse 10 when he writes you once were a not a people but now you are the people of god once you were not a people but now you are the people of God. That's how the NIV captures this truth. If, if you have a Holman translation, it offers, but you are a people for his possession. And once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. And the ESV and the NASB translations read very similarly, and the point of mentioning these is merely to communicate the fact that the author was communicating, was capturing this idea of ownership. Ownership. Now, right here, there may be some who would point out, and rightly so, Andrew, if God is, as the Bible declares him to be, the creator of the universe, the God who spoke all that is into being, then isn't he the owner of everything? The writer of Hebrews does capture 
this reality. Chapter 2, Hebrews 2, verse 10. Then he, he writes, In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, right? And then also David sings in Psalm 24, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. The Holman translators add to this, the, the earth and everything in it belong to the Lord. So, yes, to your point, yes, everything. The Lord does own everything. Therefore, what Peter is describing here in our text, it means that what he's describing here has to be more, something special, right? And it does, because his words here pertain to who? God's holy, pitied people. We're not merely God's possession, friends. As his holy, pitied people, we are his inheritance. We're the ones with whom God intends to spend eternity. And the apostle Paul explained this to the Corinthian church in his second letter, chapter 6, verse 16, where quoting God's word, first spoken to Israel and it was recorded in Leviticus 26, 12. And then it was repeated in a variant version in Jeremiah as the prophet spoke, chapter 32 and verse 36. But in 2 Corinthians 6, 16, Paul wrote, For we, this is the people, holy people, the church, for we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Emmanuel, this is God's promise to dwell in and walk among his people. A holy people made so by God's grace through faith in Jesus and whom these people whom he pitied. And thus as God interacted with Adam in the garden, so he will once again interact with us. And don't think for a moment that this is merely an eschatological reality because Jesus told listeners, and we quoted these verses out loud earlier, we read them together in Matthew 18, 20, where two or three come together, in my name there I am with them. Now just as a point of clarification, our times at present of gathered worship certainly differ from the interactions that we see described in Genesis 1 and 2, don't they? But they hold God's presence in common. Our encounters with God through his word while gathered with his people lead to his glory and result in our great joy. Now this is why, and, and I can't answer for you, but this is why I look forward to Sunday every single week. This is my favorite day of the week. I long to be with God's people, with you, worshiping him because this is what we were made for it's what we're going to do for eternity amen the church is holy pitied people possessed by god and and made a royal priesthood we are royal priests which i would imagine for many this morning sounds nice we are royal priests and we've likely heard this descriptive of god's people before but we may not have considered what it means particularly we who are protestants who always had a pastor, so-called, leading our worship services, proclaiming the gospel, preaching, and exhorting us to confess our sins to God. And the role of priest for us may easily be conflated with that which we see in the pastor. And they're not the same. They are not the same. Priest and a pastor do not have the same roles. When Peter describes the church as a royal priesthood or as priests, he is drawing upon the biblical office which served a unique and exclusive function for God's people. So the priest's role was to represent Israel before God. 
They were the intercessors. The priests were the mediators such that if you had been living in the Old Testament days and you'd wanted to present a sacrifice or if you'd wanted to pray, then you went to the temple and you gave your dove, your lamb, your goat, whatever, and you gave it to the priest. He then performed the sacrifice for you. You participated, but it was through the priest. And unfortunately, this model is still practiced today in the Catholic Church. And there may be some who are familiar with Catholicism. You may have come out of Catholicism, and if you did, you know. You don't confess to God. You confess your sins to who? To the priest in a confessional, right? You don't read your Bible. You're not encouraged to read the Scriptures. The priest reads the Scriptures for you, and then he tells you what they say. The priest continues to serve as a go-between for the people and God. And it's this very separation that Peter says is, is gone now. For Christ is our mediator. As he writes there, verse 5, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering sacrifices to God through who? Jesus Christ. So we no longer need a human intermediary, a priest. Why? Christ is it. He's our great high priest who is also God the Son, isn't he? And therefore, we now have direct access to who? God himself. And so Peter's statement that we are royal priests means that we, church, have direct access to God. And, as one scholar states, we have an exalted, active role in God's presence. In other words, we're not holy, pitied, and possessed people to whittle away our days doing nothing. We're called to now minister in the presence of God. We have a priestly work, if you will, to be about spiritual sacrifices to offer that will be acceptable to God, bringing Him glory and un us much good. And friends, this isn't a this isn't a once a week role that we fill. We aren't bivocational priests serving the Lord on Sunday, then removing our priestly vestments to replace them with scrubs or a, a tool belt or whatever. Now I love how John Piper captures the perpetual nature of this calling when he writes you are never in a neutral zone you're never in a neutral zone you're always in the court of the temple and your life is either a spiritual service of worship which paul makes clear if you look at romans 12 1 your life is either a spiritual service of worship or it's out of character and friends he can say that because in the past the work of a priest was performed where in the temple right was performed in the presence of God. And since God no longer dwells in a temple made by hands, but in our bodies, as he explained to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 6, 19, do you not know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? And then to the Ephesian church, he added that in verse 13 of chapter 1, having believed, no, you've been marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. So we, as the place where God dwells, we are always in his presence and therefore everything we do or as Paul told the church that gathered in Colossae whatever it is you do he said whether it's in word or deed do it all for the name or in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him and to the Corinthian church Paul added a little more specifically whether it's eating or drinking whatever do it all for the glory of God and so church we are holy people pitied of God possessed by God, made royal priests to God and with a purpose from God. We are a people of purpose 
We are a people of purpose. And I see this purpose given us in our text's final two verses, namely verse 11 and 12. Verse 11 and 12, which read, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So these, these two verses, verses 11 and 12 here in chapter 2, mark a transition in Peter's overall letter as they introduce a section that one commentator calls urgent application. And so up to this point, uh, the apostle in his correspondence has been establishing just who these living stones are called to be. He's been establishing the, the church. And now he wants to provide practical instruction. So he's addressing now the pragmatists in the room as to what this is supposed to look like. So, you know, and we, and we don't have time together this morning to trace out all the specifics that Peter provides the church for its working out of their salvation, which God has worked in them. But I do believe we can see the two most important, and they're given in very general terms. Where the first is this, avoid sin. Avoid sin. What is our purpose? Avoid sin. Or as Peter puts it there, abstain from sinful desires. Now, I don't know that you really need to get any more specific than that. Because John makes clear in his letter that all wrongdoing is sin. And so therefore, if there is a pragmatist, a hyper-pragmatist in the room, he's like, Andrew, I need you to make this clear. Can you help me out? What does it mean to abstain from sin? I'll help you out with Bob Newhart's words of wisdom. As it pertains to sin, stop it. S-T-O-P-I-T. <laughs> stop it. And friends, we saw this. We saw this only three weeks ago, didn't we? In Galatians, when Paul urged the church, help each other, guard against sin, and when someone falls into it, gently restore them. Now sadly, sadly, sin has long been lost as the defining practice for God's people. Today, many see the church's purpose as religious entertainment, spiritual distraction. You know, sermons are, are to be preached and make me feel better, help me succeed in life. You know, I go to church to learn how to think better so that I can be better. But friends, this isn't what the scripture teaches. Only God transforms. Only God gives lasting joy and fills us with perfect peace. And God cares passionately about sin. So passionately that he sent his only son to die for it so that its power over his people would be destroyed forever. So do you see your purpose this morning as avoiding sin? If you belong to the church, you should. We are to avoid sin and to live good lives. To live good lives. Where that term good, as Peter uses it here, can also be rendered, and I, I, I prefer these renderings, beautiful. Or attractive. And so the apostle isn't just directing us to avoid sin and be nice, like feed the hungry and visit the sick. It says, one commentator writes, the high holiness of fellowship with God must also produce observable conduct, admirable in its consistency and integrity. And friends, what is holiness but the complete absence of sinfulness, right? The complete absence of sinfulness. And so these beautiful lives, 
that we're called to live are going to be lives lived in complete obedience to God because only God is good and only God is holy. And so, Emmanuel, what this means for us then is that we are to live out everything that's in this book, aren't we? Which means if we are to be the people of God, then we must know the Word of God. And so this is why, as a body, we prioritize Sunday school, Wednesday evening discipleship, personal Bible reading plans, and Sunday worship. If we're to be the church, then we need to know the God who established it, don't we? Do you? Do you know God as he has revealed himself in the scriptures? Or do you know him as you have chosen to define him? And I fear that there are many who have a belief in a God that they've created and that they've called by the name God, but who isn't as he describes himself in his book. Because we've seen together this morning, God cares deeply about sin. He cares deeply that his church be holy holy people because he pitied them, showing mercy by, by sending his own son to die on a cross so that they might be set free from sin. So why, if God has done all this, why would we live in it any longer? He set us free from sin, choosing us to be his possession so that we might live before him, interacting directly with him with the purpose of doing all that we do, abstaining from sin, obeying his word, doing all that we do for his glory. This is who we are, church, holy people. Would you pray with me as we close? Father, we thank you that who we are has not been left to us to define. Father, that you have given us as you have revealed Yourself, You have given us a revelation of who we are, your people. Those things that define us, that we give the term marks to, or we could use anything, but what it means without which we could not be church. Lord, and we have to be holy people, people made so by your grace through faith in Jesus. Father, and then we live this holiness out by your enabling for your glory. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, and we ask this morning that if there are those that have not found a place where they belong, as your word calls us to belong, that God, that you would do this for only you can in their lives. Help them to see where they belong so that they might use the gifts that you have given them to be nurtured as we each need nurturing in the gospel, reminded of our dependence upon you for everything. Lord, and we ask that you would make us holy and make us one. Father, that our love for one another would, would reflect and a unity that we share would reflect that which defines you, the God who the scriptures describe as love and a unity that is perfect and for which you, Jesus, prayed. Lord, would you make us holy people in Jesus' name.